All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. You're here with father and son duo Andrew Jim Lindroth, also in partnership with Black and Gold Hockey Productions. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. So our guest today, we're going to get to, um, we've been waiting for him for like, uh, I think it's been like a month, month and a half, and we finally uh, got a date locked down. So I'm excited for our guest here. Uh, he's been all over the world. Give us the intro, Andrew. Yeah, we're excited to have with us today Carlo Finucci. So Carlo played in the BCHL during his developmental years before committing to the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where he played for the team from 2008 to 2012. From there, he signed his first pro contract in the ECHL with the Las Vegas Wranglers and appeared with the team over the next few years. In 2014, Carlo took his talents overseas, first playing a season in Denmark, then played a single year in the EPL and eventually found his home in the EIHL in 2016 with the Five Flyers. From there, Carlo was a huge part of the team and played with them until 2020. Uh, once the pandemic hit, he traveled into different countries playing and uh, I believe ended his career in Italy. And he's now officially retired. But what a career. And we're excited to go over it today. And I know a lot of Five Fire fans have been really looking forward to this. So welcome, Carlo uh, Finucci, man. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be here and yeah, look forward to sharing what I can um, uh, throughout this interview and podcast. Yeah, so Carlos, starting from the beginning, brother, where you know before college you played three years in the BCHL, um, which I, to us would be similar to the USHL, and we're starting to see a lot of future NHL regulars being picked up from these competitive junior leagues that are not the CHL leagues. Uh, so, not to mention you also won a BCHL championship too. So, talk to us about that time winning the championship and how you know playing in that league helped you prepare for collegiate hockey, which we'll get to. Yeah. Um... Kind of growing up here in, in Canada, um, in Vancouver, um, you don't, it wasn't as well known even uh, when I was coming up about the, the college route you could take. Um, it was more um, the WHL uh, was, was big here, uh, the Vancouver Giants. Um, it was kind of their heyday at that time. Um, and I remember going to watch their games and, um, then you start to learn about the, um, the scholarship route, NCAA, and uh, another avenue that you could take uh, to reach pro pro hockey. And um, once you start to learn about that, and you start to realize uh, the the way you got to do it by playing tier two junior, um, and then you know taking your SATs and and doing all that uh, throughout your junior time and trying to get a scholarship. So. Um, and so I got uh, my start, my 18-year-old season uh, in junior A in the BCHL with the Burnaby Express. And um, my first year, I was pretty lucky to win it all. Uh, with um, We won the BCHL championship. Uh, once you do that, you go on to play the winner of the Alberta Junior A League uh, in a best of seven series. Uh, if you win that, you go to the Royal Bank Cup, which is the national tournament. Um, there's five teams in it, the host, and then the winner of uh, other leagues across Canada. And you play to be the national championship, national champion. And we we did that. So my first year, uh, played about 90-something games. I say it's one of the most difficult trophies to win because you got to make it out of your league. And then you play another league winner. And then you have to play in a round robin tournament format uh, against the other league winners uh, to win the Royal Bank Cup. So that was a great experience. Uh, pretty spoiled to have done that my first year. And then uh, after that, it was just working towards, um, you know, getting a scholarship and, and trying to play in CAA. And 
Um, my, luckily, my 20-year-old year, I was able to get uh, a lot of ice time, a lot of responsibility, and play with some good line mates. And uh, ended up winning the scoring title. I uh, was a Coastal Conference MVP and, and was able to get a scholarship to the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that and kind of a two-part question. What made you decide to do the collegiate route as opposed to, like Andrew uh, mentioned, sticking with juniors and trying to get a pro contract from there? And then talk to us a little bit about we've had a lot of guests that have, that have been in the uh, um, collegiate hockey. I'm sure you had different offers. What made you decide with Alaska? Yeah, so for me, it uh, I was kind of a late bloomer. Um, I didn't really play AAA hockey until uh, midget uh, one year. So there was about four or five years where I played AA. Um, so I wasn't really, I wasn't drafted to the C WHL. That wasn't really on my radar. Um, and then once, um, you know, I started to get into my uh, mid-teens, started to realize that there was a different avenue. Um and playing junior A level um, was maybe something that I could get to. And also the, you know, big thing was getting a, a scholarship and, and playing, you know, getting an education while still continuing to play hockey. Um, the major junior route, you're kind of, you hit 20 years old and they do get some schooling for every year that they play in, in, in the WHL, but um, it's more of a direct line to pro. Once you go play a year pro, your your schooling goes away. So um, it was kind of gave me some more time to develop um, and, you know, play into my early 20s uh, and still play at a high level and continue to develop, uh, get better and hopefully be able to transition that into a professional career. And with the decision with Fairbanks, like I said, I was 20 years old. Um, I turned 21 in February of my last season. So I was a bit older compared to, you know, a true freshman coming in at 18. And um, that was kind of schools were really looking for, for those younger guys. Um, it was kind of one-off season for me where I went from 37 points in my 19-year-old year to 102. Uh, so that maybe first four or five months of that 20-year-old season, teams didn't really start to notice. I was, you know, lighting it up, but they're like, oh, maybe will he sustain this for a whole season? Um, schools start to give out their scholarships earlier out in the season. They don't have as much money uh, for scholarships as it goes later into the year. And once I really started to get on the radar, there was only some of these schools that maybe um, look for guys like me that uh, maybe fall through the cracks a bit with the bigger schools. And um, Alaska was very interested in me. They were at that time playing in the CCHA conference, which was, one of the best, I think, uh, in the NCAA with Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Bowling, Bowling Green, Miami, Ohio, Notre Dame. So it was a, a very good conference. So on the hockey side of things, it was a no-brainer for me. And um, it was a difficult decision in the sense of, going, you know, moving up to Alaska. It was uh, being from Vancouver, big city, big city boy to, you know, going to the, the tundra, basically. It was... Uh, yeah. I did visit um, and still made that decision to want to go there. So um, it was an eye opener and a bit of a shock, but um, you know, the hockey side of things was, was first class. And um, so that really made that decision easy. And the other things were partial scholarships and 
and things like that. And that was a full um, scholarship. So it was nice for me to be able to do that. And, um, you know, my parents had done so much for me and um, growing up that, uh, you know, I was able to get my schooling paid for. And uh, that was a big thing. So I always like to ask this question because I always found it to be a pretty fascinating transition. Didn't realize how many um, players went this route, but tail end of the ECHL season, you finish your final collegiate season and you end up getting the head start and you sign your first pro contract and you get at least, I believe, a half dozen games, or if not more in. I, that's got to be a crazy transition, right? I know that you were older, though, so you're definitely more of a grown man at that point compared to some of the other guys coming out of college. But what was the transition like playing with kids as young as 18, right, almost like the BCHL, to now grown men and they got to pay for their families and stuff? They're going to play more of an edge. What was that transition like? Were you prepared for it? And what, and what was the story of your first contract getting signed? Uh, yeah, so after my senior year was over, um, luckily with the course load I took throughout my first um, three, you know, three years of school, um, I only had four classes to complete in my senior year. So I was able to put three in in the first semester and I only had one in, the, in my last semester. So I had the time um, and to go and play some games pro once our season was over and we were knocked out of playoffs. Uh, in, in the, with the fair, with Fairbanks. So um, I think it, ha it came across that we were playing in Anchorage. Um, and at that time there was the Alaska Aces uh, ECHL team and Vegas was playing them that weekend. They would do like three games in four days type thing. And uh, I guess on the one day off um, in between, we were playing in Anchorage. Uh, they shared the same arena and um, I guess some of the Wranglers staff was there, watched the game, um, had a pretty decent game. And then um, I got the call once um, my, my year, my season ended to come down and play some games. Um, they were a very good team that year. The Wranglers were, they went to the finals. So they were pretty stacked. I was able to get down there and play some games um, you know, I was there for about two weeks in and out of the lineup as their, you know, guys were called up to the American league and getting sent down. And I got a little taste of it, um, and able to put from the limited time that I had there was able to get a, a contract uh, for them next season. So, um, interest, interesting for this, uh, for you to answer this. So a lot of our guests say when they first enter their pro, whether it be the East coast league, AHL, even NHL, they talk about their first couple of games. They do really well. And they're almost like, hey, this is pretty easy. And then they start having a stumbling block where they're like, man, this is a whole different league, meaning it might be, I guess, beginner's luck. Did you experience that Experience that, or was it just, uh, you know, you entered the East Coast League and it's just like, man, this is a rough tumble. I have to find my way. What was your first five games like? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of that. When you're coming in, you know, out of college, um, your the expectations maybe aren't super high uh, in a sense uh, when you're coming into these minor leagues. Um, so you're just going in there and you're used to playing 100 miles an hour um, and the NCAA level every game. Every game is so important. You only, you know, play a limited schedule. So you're really eager. Um, you have the legs and you're just skating around and, and 
you know, hundred miles an hour, doing what you can, you're keeping it simple. Maybe you're not trying to do too much. Um, you're not trying to make mistakes. So you're just playing a simple game as fast as you can. And then you start to realize it's a different game at that level. Um, even at the minor league level at East coast league, um, the games slow down a bit. You're playing 60, 70 games. Um, so guys are, there's vet, veterans out there that maybe aren't running around as fast, but they're thinking the game a lot faster than you. And just one of the biggest things that stood out to me was the gap um, that, you know, D-men had at that, at that level. Uh, you didn't have that time and space uh, with that puck. Uh, they were, they were on you quicker than you could expect. And even just how you had to protect the puck at that level, guys, sticks were so much better. Um, they played the body way better. Uh, everything was just so cerebral um, at that level that, you know, you had to learn how to protect the puck even better. Uh, I'm a smaller guy, so it's not like I had a big reach uh, where I could really keep the puck out and, and fend guys off. I had to find ways to, um, you know, protect that puck so I could have it on my stick and be able to make plays. And that was the biggest thing that I found was just your time and space isn't there. And just how smart they were at, you know, knocking that puck off of you. It didn't have to be a big hit or laying the body on you. They were just able to poke that puck away and um, had to find ways to, to adapt to that level. And um, yeah, it went kind of, it was up and down. Definitely my first year was a lockout season in the NHL. Uh, so the ECHL was probably the best it could be at that time because yeah. of some guys that are, are were down at that level from the American league and all the bump down trickle effect that there is. So it was, uh, that was a tough way to kind of enter my, my professional career, uh, being a, a lockout season. Um, but once it kind of ended, I was able to, you know, be a regular in the lineup, um, and finish the year strong and have a good playoffs to, you know, eventually do get myself another contract with the same team for the following year. So, Interesting question, just because it is reality. And I always wonder now the Las Vegas Knights, they, they you know, had their inaugural team a few years ago. I, I didn't realize Las Vegas Wranglers were even in the league at the time. As a young man that just signed and is there, I know for sure, I mean, ECHL players hardly make um, any money. But uh, was it hard playing pro in a place like Las Vegas? Was it tough to stay focused, save money? Or if it was easier for you, did you see that struggle with others and have to be like, hey, man, bring it in? or what, what was that like in that type of area? Yeah, I mean, like you move to a city like that and you're kind of like, uh, when am, you know, when will I ever live here again? I want to experience everything that you possibly can um, once you're living there because after that it just becomes a, a tourist destination and, you know, you're limited to what you can do and what there is to see and, uh, there's so much away from the, the Las Vegas Strip um, outside of that that, um, you know, we're able to get out and do and um, golfing, um, even if it was just getting nine holes in after, you know, after practice, um, you're able to do that year round. And that was really nice to do to get through the day because you're at the rink two, three hours, maybe max. There's only so long you can be there and then you got a whole day to fill and um, so it was important. Like you said, there's a lot of distractions and, um, 
you know, things like being able to golf or um, you make connections with people in, in the city, uh, whether they're associated with the, the team or not. And uh, whether it, you know, it's tickets to a show or a concert, um, things like that. There's always something to do to keep busy. Uh, definitely difficult to, to save your money when you're doing that. But I mean, you also got to look at it as you're not going to be there your whole life. You're not there for the money in that league. That's for sure. In any city that you're in. So um, you're trying to do, you know, balance everything to be as good as you can on the ice. Cause you are ultimately trying to climb the ladder, but also trying to experience everything around you and um, try to make the most of it. Like you said, you never know when you'll, be in a city like that and you want to try and, you know, make as many connections as you can and um, experience it to, to the fullest. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's talk about here. Uh, we've been through this with our guests, as you said, and our guests know, you know, East coast uh, cap salaries. So uh, the players aren't, aren't, you know, making the, the money that they really should. So I'm sure you're looking at that. You're looking at, hey, I need to progress in my career. I need to make more money. And you make the jump over um, into Europe. So what kind of made you get over there? I know you jumped on. I think it was Denmark was was next. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but money's better over there, at least in a lot of the leagues. And you finally end up um, over in the uh, British Elite League uh, with Fife. So kind of bring us to your decision to say, hey, I think, you know, it is what it's going to be here at the moment in North America. I'm going overseas and I'm jumping on, you know, um, with some other leagues to, uh, you know, make some money. Bring us through that decision. Yeah. So um, just uh, near my senior year of university, I was, I, I got my uh, Italian passport. So my dad was born in Italy. I was able to get my citizenship and passport. So I had that. It was kind of always the thought of, you know, I'll go over to Italy and, you know, play as long as I can over there and, and, you know, try and experience that. And then going into graduating, going into that first year pro, um, the rules change uh, in Italy specifically, where even with a passport, I would be considered an import. So that's why I decided to give uh, North America a try and um, gave that a season and see maybe the rules change, change back into my favor or whatever happens. So um, another year went by, they didn't change the rules and they actually lessened the amount of imports that were on each team. So um, got a, not, it went from nine down to four. So it actually got even harder now to get into Italy specifically. Um, I always thought it would just be kind of a, a layup basically on my passport. I'm Italian. I can go play there and, um, you know, competing myself against local Italian players I felt I had a leg up and know I can make a career career out of it and uh, so that kind of got difficult after my first two years out of out of uh, college and after that second year of uh, in the coast I like you said by then I was 28 I think 27 28 um, and maybe you know the the dream of uh, climbing the ladder over North America was probably coming to a close and uh, decided to get over to Europe. Uh, like you said, it's a little more lucrative um, money-wise. It's obviously not the big, big bucks like in KHL or in the Swedish league or Swiss league, things like that, but you can make a decent living. Your um, The conversion rate for 
whether it's the euro or the, the British pound um, goes a long way when you're bringing it back to the Canadian dollar and um, everything's covered over there with living uh, it's tax-free so you can make a decent buck over there um, when all things considered and uh, that was what went into my decision to finally get over there and um, hooked on with an agent um, and got into Denmark, um, I, which I thought was a pretty, pretty good league. That uh, whole nation was kind of coming up in the hockey world with the their men's, uh, you know, uh, world championship team. They were in the top level and producing some decent NHL talent at the time. And I was thought of, of a good league to kind of kickstart there and start my European career. Yeah, so after uh, you were in Denmark and then what was known, I believe, at the time when you joined was the EPIHL, I think it's the EPL now, but you eventually signed with the Five Flyers after those two years, and then you stayed with the team for the next four seasons. So, I mean, obviously kind of bring us through that story, how you sound, uh, how you signed with Five, and uh, and talk to us about your experiences there, man. I know you were there and were a big part of that team, and a lot of the fans were excited for this. So let us know about that. Yeah, so I came, obviously, after that year in Denmark, um, whatever happened that offseason, just did, could not hook on with a, you know, with a, a move, I guess you would say, up in uh, in Europe and uh, ended up finding myself, you know, at home in mid-October and got a call from um, a guy in Swindon there, um, Steve Lyle. He was a Cardiff uh, Devils legend. Um and GB international legend, um, he said, you know, come over here, just start playing. There's no good sitting around. And, uh, you know, it was decent money. And he said, you know, I can do my best to help you get to the elite league for the following season. So um, it ended up working out really well. And I was able to talk to Todd Dudium that off season. And he, you know, gave me a chance, took a chance on me, basically coming from lower league and uh, with the with the EIHL, it's so well followed, um, you know, in the arenas with the attendances that they get. And then also on social media, it's a very big, big part of it. And I remember just the the flack, you know, I was getting, the club was getting uh, for signing, you know, there's 14 imports in that league per team. And, uh, you know, a guy coming from a lower league, it was kind of a microscope on to see what I could do and I didn't have that big resume that some of the other guys they had signed coming in and um, I had definitely a lot to prove and yeah my first year was uh, a learning curve as well there was you know playing you know with uh, some older guys that had some big resumes and um, there was 14 imports it was tough for me to really get um, even a chance on the power play and, and things like that but I was able to do what I could throughout that season and was able to lock on for the year after. And I think Todd and, and the staff knew what I could do and gave me a much bigger role the following year. And I kind of ran away with that. Um, I, yeah, I ran away with it that season and really didn't look back. Um, had a great time there um, on the ice, off the ice. I think uh, a lot of people uh, in their fan base really, took a liking to my, my style of play. Um, you know, I wasn't the biggest guy and, and the most physical, but uh, I did what I could uh, to produce and scored some big goals throughout my, my time there. And I think uh, that really 
you know, grew a fondness with, with the fans and um, you're able to, it's a, such a small town. You're able to, you see them around, whether you're going for a coffee to the grocery store and, you know, they really make you feel at home. And uh, that's what I loved about it. And it really made it difficult to want to look elsewhere um, in Europe for a spot because I knew what I had there and how special it was to really test the market and, you know, see what was out there. Sometimes the grass isn't always greener. And uh, I, we loved it there. Me and my wife, um, we were there for four years. So I didn't think I would ever leave. Um, but obviously COVID uh, forced that league to shut down. And um, I was always looking forward to coming back possibly, but I had to call it a career. So um, it was a great four years. Um, and I still in touch with so many people there and, uh, and it helps with social media to the fans and the interaction I still have and hope to have um, in the future uh, because I will be following, following along. Yeah. So, and we haven't mentioned stats up to this point, uh, but your time, well, we'll just say in, in Europe, uh, any league that you play, I mean, you're putting up the numbers um, you're at least uh, uh, averaging like almost a point a game. I think in your four years, uh, you were, you know, you average at least 20 or 22 goals uh, with Fife given any season when you average out the four seasons. So you certainly producing, um, putting the puck in the net. Talk to us a little bit about, um, and again, Andrew and I have uh, had on a bunch of players and, and a coach um, in the elite league. How would you compare? Because in the elite league, for our listeners that may not know, the imports not only come from North America, they come from the Swedish league, they come from the German Dell, the KHL, I mean, all over. So, Carlo, how would you compare the elite league when you were playing to like a another league was it comparable to more of the uh american league uh more of the german dell i know you didn't play in the german dell but i'm sure you're familiar with it how would you compare the elite league um i think it doesn't get the the respect um or the notoriety that it uh, really deserves um with 14 imports per team um there's some serious serious talent uh high-end east coast hockey league guys to you know, middle, middle of the pack kind of AHL players mixed in with Europeans that play in you know in their respective leagues, uh, whether it's Sweden or Finland or you know Germany, things like that. There's tons of talent in that league. There you're looking at 140 imports with 10 teams in that league. Um, there's a lot of talent there and. It doesn't get the respect. I think it ranks right up there. Um, if if some of those teams that play in those European competitions, like the Champions League and things like that, they kind of get maybe blown out of the water at the beginning because they're playing against clubs that come together mid to late July, uh, where the elite league teams that play in those competitions, maybe they get together early August to mid August they're together a couple of weeks and then they're playing CHL games already without playing any preseason games or even any league games. So, but then you'll, you'll see as that competition progresses into the fall, 
um, and those teams have kind of gelled and had time to, they're starting to beat those teams from the Swedish league, the Swiss league, the German Dell, like they're beating those teams or putting up, you know, good fights against those teams as that competition goes along, because they are, those are really top teams. Some of those top teams in the EIHL, um, could compete with any team in, in Europe, I believe. And I don't think it gets the respect it does. It's starting to a little bit more. Yeah. But it's taking its time. I think GB being in the top world championships maybe shed a little bit of light on that as well. Um, but yeah, I think it was uh, when you say, oh, you play, I play in the UK, I play in the UK. Oh, really? Like, what was that like? And then you start, they start to look at the rosters and see some of the names that are there. And oh, wow, he's there. He played in this level, played that level. I played with a couple guys my first year that played in the NHL. And, um, you know, maybe they're a little bit older and come to that league, but still like for them to have reached that the top of, uh, of hockey and you're playing against them, they're still, you know, they can still play at a high level. And it was, uh, it was great to really get to that, to that level and be able to start to produce and put up some numbers uh, against talent uh, and teams and opposition uh, in that league and, um, you know, make a name for myself. So um, what's, Give us just talking UK hockey in general. It seems to me that one of the toughest things that they have to do over there is they don't play as many games as we do in North America. So you're playing 50 some odd games for the season. You don't really have time for a team to get into a slump or you're at the bottom of the league. Right. So what what is it about a team that they have to get a good start at the top of the season and keep it going? What's, what's the magic trick over there for getting a team to be successful? Oh, oh, like Belfast has been in the past few seasons. Yeah, I think, I think this is something all, all through Europe, but uh, budgets really do play a big part in what teams are able to do in the sense of who they're signing, how early they can bring the team together Um some teams are gate-based really they're based on their ticket sales they can't bring a team and house 14 imports and pay them without you know having games home games to get money in the door um, or stream streaming services and getting money that way to pay the players like that they don't uh you know there isn't that money so i think teams like it happens in hockey happens in soccer in Europe. There's it's always the same teams at the top that are fighting for, for those championships. Um, I think where it could be maybe beneficial to introduce a playoffs where you do have maybe a team that finishes eighth and makes a run or um, has a chance really, because to try and win their big championship there is finishing first in the league after the regular season. Um to really for a team to compete that doesn't have the budget, like some of those top clubs do um, it's, it is really difficult. And I think trying to get a team in for 10, 10, 10 practices and a couple of preseason games, and then jumping into a season where a team's been together for a month, played CHL games, Champions League games, uh, or, you know, played other European competition in, in preseason and have been together for so long um, and, and are able to hit the ground running when the season started. I think that's a big difference. And 
I don't think it's lack of ambition by by teams. It's just money talks, and um, it's just the only way teams can survive is to find ways to maybe you know not have to pay players for an extra two weeks or an extra month and that you start to think of the numbers 14 imports and paying them a certain amount like the money adds up and uh it's not lack of ambition and i know that uh fans maybe are frustrated because teams aren't coming in coming in together and getting together and training together uh a lot earlier than maybe they they should be but I think that's just the the way the landscape is now. Who uh, who well, are the rivals? Who are the rivals when you when you were playing a few years ago? Who are your rivals? Uh, for or, sh- or, sh- or should I put it this way? What what team or two teams did you you personally dislike the most? I think easily Glasgow's uh, um, Brayhead, or as they were called the first couple of years. Um, but Glasgow, that was a big one for us. Um, I think we we're usually fighting for the same positions as well and during the season. Um, and that was always a big one. Uh, they, they brought a great um, traveling crowd to Fife. We brought a great one to Glasgow and it was always uh, a good rivalry. It kind of, it kind of went from year to year where one of them, dom- one of us dominated each year. Uh, my first year, they dominated the rivalry. The second year we took it to them. Um, and then, you know, it kind of went back and forth. So then obviously, um, any of the Scotland teams was a big one for us. Uh, obviously, um, that's just a geograph- geographical rivalry and, um, you could feel it, uh, from the fans, you're, you know, you're not from there, you're not born in there, you're not born there, but you could feel the rivalry, you could see it on social media. And, um, it was, uh, very cool to be a part of those games. So the pandemic hits and some of the recent players, coaches we've had on here, um, it's always interesting now to hear some of the stories of where they were, how they ended up where. Um, we've heard some really crazy stuff, but when the pandemic hit for you, and, and correct me, Carlo, if I'm mistaken, I believe you head to Romania first before you go to Italy. And uh, first of all, how did you end up there? And did you have any crazy stories? Did you ever, did you get stuck anywhere, any weird experiences during that time as you're traveling, especially? Um, I always kind of thought myself lucky. I only had to quarantine, I think twice, um, for travel, for traveling reasons. Uh, it was coming home after COVID hit, um, in that March, 2020, when the season ended and then my following season after my season in Romania, I didn't have to quarantine when I arrived there at the beginning of the season. And I had, I luckily hadn't got COVID over the last two seasons. So um, there's some people that have spent probably six months total in, in, uh, in having to quarantine because of travel and then because of getting COVID or things like that. So um Crazy wise, no, uh, there was, um, yeah, having a, when we came back from Romania, having a quarantine in a hotel, having to get out of, you know, get it quarantining in a hotel. Um, I won't get into that, but that was something crazy that Canada implemented where you had to pay out of pocket to, to stay in a hotel for three days, um, and wait for your 
COVID negative test, then you could go to your home and finish quarantining there for the 14 days. So, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a weird, obviously you come home and they, they were saying, you know, two weeks, another two weeks of, uh, we'll get back to normal, get back to normal and just started again to two months. And, um, it was all the leagues in Europe didn't know when things were going to start North America, what was happening. Um, and I got a call from, uh, an agent saying, Hey, do you want to go play in the Ursa Liga? There's a Romanian team, uh, that, you know, wants to have you come in. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I'll, it was the first thing I had really received that summer. Um, and I saw the contract and I was kind of blown away. Like this is the most money I've been, you know, offered to play hockey. Um, and it's in Romania. And then I actually happened to know a few guys that had played there before. So I was able to talk to them and get their word about it. And, um, it ended up, uh, working out really well. Um, there was later in the summer found out my wife was pregnant. So that kind of, put things in a wrinkle where like, is it going to be all right to have the baby over there and um, digging on that with some of the players that live there um, and play there. And uh, they were able to kind of ease those things. And the team was very helpful with, uh, you know, anything that you need when you're, when you're here for, for all that, we'll get that taken care of and and we'll sort you out with all that and help you uh, any way we can. So, yeah, that was uh, probably a pretty pretty wild, you know, experience to not not only go over there just for the hockey, but also to, you know, my son was going to be born there, and um, people probably thought we were a little crazy doing that, but uh, it worked out and um, had a really awesome season there. With uh, there was five other Canadian guys as imports and. Um, you know, we made the most of it with the ever-changing COVID landscape and what you're able to do and couldn't do. And, um, you know, I had a great, great uh, season there. And my son was born in, Feb- uh, in ja- early January that season. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, we won a few things as well. So it was a, a great season overall. So before we get to our lightning round questions, where we're going to kind of put you on the spot with fast answers, um, you end up finishing your career in Italy, correct? So you finally made it over to Italy. Kind of, it sounds like it was kind of a goal of yours. Yeah, it was, it always was. Um, It would have been cool to, you have to play two seasons uh, in the Italian league to be eligible for the national team. I always thought that was something that I could, you know, maybe achieve seeing some of the guys that had done that in the past. Um, Obviously you're not competing against, um, you know, guys that go to play in, I don't know, like some higher resume guys that maybe go to higher leagues and have to compete against those guys to play on the national team. I felt like I had a good, I had a good chance based on uh, what I could do to maybe play on the national team. And that was kind of what I was told throughout this year. Uh, Why didn't you come over here sooner? Um, Could have, you know, been playing on the national team. And so that was kind of tough to hear um, because I always had wanted to, um, but, for whatever reasons, it just never came about. And at 35 years old, that's when I got my opportunity. And uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I was able to to play season there, experience it, 
uh, being Italian background, uh, to be able to live there, um, for me and my family to live there for eight months and experience the culture and, um, live in a beautiful part of the country up North in Cortina. Um, it was, it was picturesque, uh, beyond belief. And, uh, we had an, a really, really great time. I knew we had a pretty good idea that maybe it was going to be my last season. So we kind of, um, really relished in it, uh, in it all and, uh, made some great friends there. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, a really a good way to cap it off. I would have loved to play another season, whether it be there in Italy or finished off in Fife, um, uh, for it being my, to, for a final season, but, um, just life hits you and you have to kind of make some difficult decisions. And I know I could still play at a high level. Um, had a great season this year. So it was, it's nice. It's bittersweet to know that you could still play at a high level, but also that you kind of are leaving the game on your own terms and, um, knowing that you could still play, um, if you wanted to, and you weren't really pushed out of the game, whether it be injuries or, uh, maybe you're just behind now and couldn't, uh, play at a decent level. Lightning round question. So, um, whatever the first thing that comes to your mind, it could be a name. It could be a place. You could have a, a story. The, the time is yours. So here we go. And if, and if you really have to go, uh, man, I'm not past, then we'll pass. Who was your favorite coach over the years you played hockey? If you had to pick one. Uh, Rick Lands, my junior coach in uh, Burnaby. Which arena had the worst ice conditions? And this can go back just to your pro years. No college, no juniors. Worst ice conditions. Yeah, you played a lot, a lot of places. Um, I'll go specifically Guildford uh, in the UK. There's a lot that go under that because they have like 400 people on the ice for public skating right before. And that thing just gets torn to hell and some of the arena staff probably aren't very well equipped uh, or knowledgeable to to deal with that so yeah I would say Guilford we had some ice issues there a few times with holes in the ice and um yeah it was crazy Andrew correct me if I'm wrong this is not the first time we've heard this no Guilford yeah a couple of them have said Guilford before wow okay well we got to get some uh guilford people on and ask them what, what's going on with the rink it's probably like the tulsa oilers here in the east coast league where you know uh if a glass oh, breaks it takes them a half an hour to fix it anyway <laughs> the most embarrassing thing to happen to you during a game or a warm-up or the craziest thing um that comes to mind i would say i got like so in warmups, I'd run, I'd uh, have my, like my chin strap undone on my helmet. And I was just minding my business at center and near the, near the red line in warmups. And one of my teammates, Brett Bulmer in Fife, he like must've shot in the half circle line and went to take some hard strides and uh, towards center and didn't see me and just absolutely over. And my <laughs> helmet ended up, like in the slot of the Cardiff Devils end. <laughs> like, am I going to, like, I had to shake myself off at first and I had to realize my helmet's in the other zone. And I was like, do I skate like amongst all these, <laughs> get it? And actually one of the guys had seen it on their team 
happened and like brought my helmet over and was like man are you okay like <laughs> so i went off the ice mid warm-ups to like kind of collect myself a bit because i like it was one of the biggest hits i've ever got i didn't see it coming and obviously my helmet went flying so that was probably the most embarrassing slash kind of crazy thing that's happened that, that's good in- yeah what? that's a good one what was the favorite league you played in and why Strictly speaking about the league, not the team experience, but the league. I would say the the EIHL. Um, to think you're going to the UK and then playing in front of 9,000, 9,000 people in, in Sheffield or Nottingham, the steps, you know, skating out into those crowds, um, you know, playing at a minor pro level, obviously, uh, is very, very special to be able to do that. Um, and not really knowing that going to the UK that you're going to be able to play in front of crowds that big, uh, whatever level you're playing at to play in front of that many people, the atmosphere is unbelievable. And, um, it really makes playing in that league special because even in some of the smaller arenas, uh, like Fife is 3000 people. And when that thing's full, it's, it's uh, something else. It feels like there's triple that in there. So, uh, definitely the EIHL because of, the experience you get playing in front of those crowds. Uh, some of them are um, crazy uh, with what they say, what they do to you, to the opposition. And uh, yeah, definitely the AHL. Andrew, give me uh, two before, uh, give me two questions. All right. So who was the guy that got under your skin the most in your career? Who was the rat to you? Just got under your skin. Um, there's a, Connolly on um he's played his first name Brian Connolly maybe he's on been in Glasgow Belfast oh yeah I think he's in Chef yeah he's in Sheffield now yeah okay um yeah definitely like a he's a really good hockey player um uh but uh yeah just um, some of the stuff was just useless what he was doing. Uh, I think it took away from his his uh, playing because, uh, like I said, he's a really good player. But, um, yeah, some stuff just gutless. Uh, I even played against him in the close, I think, too. So um, I think he has that rep kind of all over the place. Um, I mean, uh, like I've said a few times, he's a really good hockey player. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was definitely, I don't think just under my skin, but a lot of, a lot of people's skin. Maybe that's a good thing because he's not getting under people's skin, but definitely spent a lot of time in, in the box. And for being such a good player, it, uh, um, you know, I'm sure he's more beneficial to his team out on the ice. Who is the strongest defenseman? And, and I mean strongest, like you can't move him in front of the net. He's moving you, not the toughest as a fighter, but who's the strongest defenseman that you were just surprised that you can't move this guy? Or was there a guy? Um, I think uh, Pellick, um, on, he was on the, uh, Belfast, my final season in Fife. He not only was big and difficult to move but he's like terrifying and I feel like he had it out for me like every game I don't know why um (laughs) uh he yeah he could not move him 
Um, he could move you very easily, but uh, he could, would take some huge runs and he's a, he's a very, very big boy. And uh, yeah, I would say him for sure. He made playing um, very difficult and um, even on a, some of the uh, sheets, big sheets out there, um, he was still able to line you up and um, yeah, he was uh, tough, tough and terrifying to play against actually. Andrew, oh, just to kind of wrap it up, and I know it's a uh, broad question and everything, but what is the most memorable moment in your pro hockey career? Um, I would probably have to say my second year when uh, we won uh, our playoff double or home and home there against um, Manchester to go to the Nottingham uh, final four weekend. Um, not only was it like a unbelievable comeback in the second leg of that, um, of that series uh, to do it on the road uh, where I'm sure guys will admit to you. They probably didn't think that it was something that we could overturn a four, one deficit going into the second game. Um, and I'm sure the fans, the traveling fans were probably, um, not thinking that was going to happen either. The Manchester players were, you know, tripping away at it, at us after that game. And I think they probably thought they had it sealed up and for us to go down there in a difficult building to play in, um, and come back in that game to tie it, the, the series up basically lost four, one at home one four one on the road and that made it go into overtime. Um, and I was able to score um, the goal a few minutes into, into overtime to win us at that series and, and get us to Nottingham the final four weekend. So that probably in my pro career um, would be probably my most memorable moment for sure. So some of the fans listening will want to know, get an update on uh on Finucci so you recently retired what's your game plan where are you now and kind of where do you what do you hope to do now I'm back home in uh in Vancouver I've just uh been trying to keep busy as much as I can uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, skill development stuff which is uh with the you know youngsters that I've been doing kind of in the off seasons to either keep busy or make a few extra bucks uh, so I kind of dove back into that uh, as the summer progressed and guys got, you know, kids back, got back onto the ice um, and getting ready for their tryouts or their, their fall winter seasons. And uh, so that kept me busy for the last six weeks. Um, now that's kind of, kind of uh, die down a bit as they go into their tryouts and, and seasons. So I'm um, just looking to what I want to get into for my new career. Um, Hockey would be nice, but um, I think that just would involve, you know, the competitive side of me would involve, you know, climbing the ladder again, whether it's in, on the coaching side of things. And uh, that would mean moving around again. And I think that's one of the main reasons of why I did stop playing was to try and set up back home here and set some roots and be around family and friends. It'll be my first Christmas at home in 15 years. Um, yeah. So I think it's something 
we definitely want to give it a, a shot at uh, to settle here back home. And uh, I'm not going to count it out because hockey has been such a big part of my life and will continue to be, I'll try and, you know, help out and, and do what I can uh, in my spare time. But uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see where that takes me. I'm going to, there's a university here, SFU, Simon Fraser University, that uh, most of their sports play in CAA Division Two. It's the only Canadian university that that does that. They're still a club team. Um, they're trying to move to Division One hockey. Um, so I'm trying. I'm around them, helping out as an assistant as much as possible. Um, so I'll be doing that uh, in my spare time, and uh, yeah, just keeping myself in hockey. Like I said, it's uh, been such a part of my life and I feel like uh, there's you know a lot that I could give back uh, whether to it's to the to the youngsters you know coming up in hockey or to the guys that are trying to make that jump and I'm so fresh out of hockey that I, I just feel like I got a pretty decent pulse on it and um, have tons of advice to give and could help uh, could help them out. Well, we can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, we look forward to it. You didn't disappoint. Hopefully you had a a good time on the uh, on the pod today. Yeah, it was great. It's uh, really cool to kind of reminisce, and you start to even think of uh, stories that uh, you, you forgot about maybe um, throughout this time. And I should almost probably start writing them down for for any future uh, podcast <laughs> like that to try and you know remember some of these stories. Like you're talking about the bad ice, and we're in uh, Utah. And the game got stopped because there was a huge hole and we couldn't, couldn't finish. We're like, you, can we play a shootout or something? Like, can we do something? There was like eight minutes left in the third period. And like, we couldn't end the game and we had to stay the night and then go play in a different rink the next day to finish. Wow. the game. But like, it's just things like that. Like I hadn't even rem remembered that until you asked me about the worst ice you played on. So like it's just things like that. It's uh, I'm sure guys have crazy and awesome stories and some you can tell some you can't, but um, yeah, I even said listening like the big one, like spin chicklets, let's say some of the minor league guys that maybe didn't play in the NHL or had a little cup of coffee, but played in Europe and all these leagues have some way better stories than, you know, the guys that have played in the NHL or, are currently playing in the NHL. It's great to hear their side of things, but they're so limited to what they can say and what they can tell you. So it's, uh, it's cool to hear some of these minor league guys stories. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we love it. We love it. And, you know, uh, we'd love to have you back on, uh, you know, particularly because we've got a big interest in the EIHL as, as well. And, uh, and just talking uh, about the stories, you know, we love to hear, uh, a lot of the different stories, the stories you can tell. Well, actually, we hear quite a few stories off air, but, uh, you know, we enjoy it. Let's put it that way. So anyway, hang on. We'll say goodbye off air. But officially, again, thank you so much, Carlo. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Okay. So Andrew's having, uh, as we're wrapping up the episode, he might be having, he's having internet issues because Andrew's actually remote this week. We didn't mention that. Andrew, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. So great guy, man. Great guest. Yeah. Great time. And, you know, 
always good to hear stories from guys that maybe didn't make it to the NHL. You know, they've, they've always got interesting things. And as our interest in the EIHL continues, it's cool to have players from different teams rather than cover, covering just one. So, um, yeah, it was a great time. Absolutely. And we have not had on any former players from um, the Fife team. So Fife Flyer fans, uh, welcome to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. Uh, if you're listening and, uh, you know, welcome on board. We do try to cover uh, uh, UK Elite League as well as as well as our AHL, NHL and East Coast League here in America. So uh, we want to thank everybody and we'll wrap it up for this week. Andrew, see you later. Thank you, man. Thank you.